Listening to us on the podcast via iTunes, you might be listening to the podcast via some other system. Doesn't matter really, but you can also hear us live every Sunday um, from 12 to 1 on FabRadioInternational.com. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with. Oh, hello, producer Anne. Al. Okay. I've got a name. Paul. You, you do have a name. So, uh, we will be talking about Star Wars The Journey to the Force Awakens very shortly. But firstly, we're going to get very, very excited about some books that are coming out this year. So it's going to be a bit of an exciting year for um, all things book releases. Books! 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 So, as you might be able to gather, this is a show that is a slightly bit of a sneaky pre-record. So if you're thinking, why aren't they talking about this particular piece of news? Well, it's because the world of book news is normally quite slow. and Normally. Normally quite slow. Which means, of course, something exciting has probably already happened. Uh, and also, it's the start of the year. There's a lot of stuff that's coming out very soon. Um, I'm going to talk about because we are sort of a genre book show and we talk about the genre booky things I'm going to talk about something that I'm a bit excited by which is a spin-off book Ooh. now we talk about spin-off books quite a bit uh, it's interesting that you should go woo because it's a supernatural cold fire um, what, the TV show? The TV show, Supernatural, uh, of which you've probably read plenty of fanfic. Um, there's lots of fanfic personally, available. No, personally, no. There's lots of fanfic available. I'm, uh, no, no, I'm aware that there is lots of fanfic available. Um, I, however, have not read any of it. It's almost like the, 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 the main cast is extremely pretty and very shippable. <laughs> except and aren't, aren't they kind of completely fine with it all? In a sort of slightly unusual move? Um... Hmm. Interestingly, they're fine with all the fan fiction and the fan the fan love. Yes, they they twitch slightly at some of the naughtiest stuff because the two main characters are brothers, and that's a bit just a little bit little bit incesty. That's a bit. There's, there's actually a phrase for it, which is because uh, they're the Winchesters. Right. So it's called Winchest. Oh, I like. I'm, I'm admiring the pun, but I'm also slightly appalled. It's it's yeah. <laughs> there's there's quite a bit of the supernatural fandom that just go no, they're brothers. Ew. Ew. Um, but luckily Castiel is there and Castiel is A, totally a babe and B, and, and B, you know, there for the... Th- there's a lot of there's a lot of shipping going on with Angels, Demons and the Winchester Brothers. Anyway, I'm getting totally off the point, aren't I? Um, Cold Fire is written by John Passarella. It'll be out on t- Titan in February, the end of February. Um, it's a monster that eats... Oh, I'm going to make producer Al make horrible sounds. It's an eye-eating monster oh, that seems to be from. Wow. It, it appears to be from the the roots of America's dark, dark dreams. Essentially, what is, uh, what is wrong with America? Seriously, just just stop it. Lots and lots of long, winding roads and distant spaces and small communities. Plenty of places to hide monsters, um, and guns as well, which don't work on monsters. 
Oops, never mind. Eh? Uh, so yeah, it looks, it looks quite good. But it's it's being written by John Passarella, who is a Bram Stoker winning award-winning guy. What's the Bram Stoker award for? It's an award for horror, horror uh, writing. It's a horror writing that award. Makes sense. Um, they do. You kind of get a lot of pulpy stuff on mm. on the Bram Stoker as well, which makes sense because everyone forgets that Dracula was pulp. Yeah. If you want to complain about Dracula not being pulp, feel free. Uh, you can contact us on the social medias at Radio Bookworm on Twitter, or you can contact us on uh, Facebook as Radio Bookworm. Uh, you can also contact us um, on Tumblr on Tumblr as Radio Bookworm. So there's a whole collection of, of ways of getting in touch and complaining about this show. Um, but we also like love. We do. We want your love. Um, staying, staying well, in. That's t- like a bad eighties pop tune, isn't it? It is. It probably anyway, is. On. There probably is one called that. Uh, staying with Titan. This is coming out uh, later in the year. The dart. The art. The dart. The art of Deus Ex Universe. Now, Deus Ex is a cyberpunk video game. Okay. Um, which is all about the evolution of mankind into technology. It's a very cyberpunk. It's very cyberpunk lit- literate as well. There's lots of William Gibson references and Bruce Sterling references and that sort of thing. The whole sci-fi subgenre of cyberpunk. Which, by the by, if you are under the age of sixty and you've ever complained, <laughs> where is my jetpack? You did, weren't promised a jetpack by by science fiction. You were promised a bleak corporate run dystopia. Oh, oh, hang on a minute. That's not seem so. Wait, hang on. What? No. That, this, this is this is not worked out the way I expected. That's what was predicted to you by science fiction authors. Mm. Uh, if if you're older than sixty, then you know, promised flying cars and rocket ships and colonies on the moon yeah, and jetpacks. You have got grounds to be annoyed. And you have j- grounds to be annoyed. But you know, it was your generation who was supposed to make those things happen. So nay, um, we we predicted that it was all going to go to rack and ruin. And lo and behold, um, anyway, that's going off the point, And we should do a cyberpunk special at some point. I believe. Um, Deus Ex is gorgeous. It would be interesting to look at the art book. I recently looked at the art book for The Force Awakens. Oh, oh, oh. It's gorgeous. That's absolutely gorgeous. You can tell a lot about a production by the artwork, because even if a lot of the art doesn't actually go into the final production, it it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's the ideas board, isn't it? Yeah, it's the language. It's the language that they're using and the direction that they're thinking in. Um, I've seen some of the Deus Ex universe. Mood board, that's the word I'm, I'm grasping for. It, it, it's also, it, it also lets you, yeah, it lets you basically make a dream become tangible which is as your job as your job is to turn something that's in your head into you know a video game or a story in some some level you kind of need someone of talent just to draw it for you um and you know it feeds into itself that's the point of the artwork so it's always interesting to see uh, the art from such a production video games of course produce a lot of art because it's a essentially visual medium yeah. uh, everyone has to draw everything um 300 images uh used in production from sketches and concept art um, um, Paul Davis is was the guy who's basically uh, managed and curated the art all the way through uh, from DSX from the very beginning. It, it looks very interesting, to, to to be honest. It only covers the last two DSX games, which I believe are called Human Revolution and Mankind Divided. I could be wrong. I have a creaking ancient PC, so I've not played any of them for a while. Uh, if you think that I'm sending you to sleep, then maybe you want to consider Adrian Barnes' book Nod, which takes place in Vancouver and details world where some mysterious reason no one can get to sleep a global pl- plague of insomnia threatens the peace of the world this one's already out but it's being reissued because it was out on small it was on, out on a lower run and now it's coming out again oh. if you see what i mean um after a few, a few days people start getting angry after a few more days the world starts to begin and uh, begins to end because you know no one can find a cup of horlicks oh it's all going wrong and everyone 
everyone, everyone's a bit cranky, everyone's a bit tired, and you know, if the entire world's a bit cranky and a bit tired and desperately just wants some kip, it's not going to end well, really. Um, Jonathan Green, yay, uh, is uh, writing Doctor Who, choose the future, Night of the Kraken. Jonathan Green, Green, Jonathan Green, the fighting fantasy uh, novelist and author, not John Green, the, the, that other guy, uh, Jonathan Green, uh, has written quite a few Choose Your Own Adventure star books in the past, uh, and he's writing another one because he's he typically gets invited back to these things. He's writing Doctor Who, Night of the Kraken. Or, or what can we say to choose your own adventure book that has giant squid monsters in it and the doctor what can possibly go wrong I'm sold I, I'm totally <laughs> there um, I kind of want a picture of a kraken holding a sonic screwdriver but maybe oh, that's just me grief. could you imagine the chaos it would cause uh, or maybe it would just put up some shelves you never know there can't be many shelves in the sea you can't find B&Q there's not many subaquatic B&Qs maybe there's a whole thing going on there and thank goodness for that because B&Q is, B&Q is like the sixth level of hell isn't it? I've not been to the sixth level of hell. I've been to IKEA on a bank holiday weekend. Oh no! You see, you're bringing this on yourself. I, I'm, I'm trying to work. What is the sixth level of hell? I don't know. Hang on. You can write in and tell us because we're clearly uneducated numps. <laughs> but um, I think because the because oh the last layers for like you know Judas Iscariot and the, the real high high level criminals. <laughs> that seems very cool. But um, yeah, sixth level of hell. But anyway, we've gone off the topic. Um, talking about that you can get into everywhere by which i mean the paul mccauley book into everywhere which is the uh, which is the uh fe- oh apparently the sixth level of hell is heresy oh right oh well, okay well i'll enjoy going there eventually um how is it what, what just heresy in general seemingly so it's a disagreeing of star wars canon for example uh, in the sixth circle heretics such as epicureans who say the soul dies of the body are trapped in flaming tombs Nice. Mm. At least they're warm. Yeah. It's hard. I imagine it's quite hard to get something heating that far down. <laughs> um. Anyway, t- talking about. Uh, so, so we so we stop talking about ancient fan fiction. Yes. Which Dante's for in- info now clearly is. Ooh. Uh, totally Don't is. tell fanboys this sort of thing. It, it's fan it gets fiction. The, gets, it gets annoying. It's biblical fan fiction. Mm. Totally is. It's an early example of biblical fan fiction, like lots of other things. But um, I could I could go down a route of the Bible being fanfic. Let's stop that now. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, yeah, let's not go there. That's an entirely different show. I, I know it's a Sunday, but yeah. I know it's a book, but no, 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 no. no. Is it? Is the Bible genre? No, because it's a it's a religious text, and it doesn't need to be marketed. <laughs> Because you've got to remember that genre labels are simply, simply for marketing. And the Bible does not need to be marketed. Well, that's the thing you said yesterday. YA is a designation, it, not a genre? Yeah, YA is a designation, not a genre. Um, it's it totally... I mean, it was kind of going off the topic here, but it, it totally is. Um, young adult, you get young adult fantasy, you get young adult sci-fi, you get young adult romance, you get all sorts of stuff that's young adult. It's a designation. It's, it's as ridiculous as saying black fiction. What the heck does What's that mean? That? Uh, well, exactly. Uh, it's a designation. What you're saying is that you're saying it's books written by uh, people of a certain ethnic, ethnic orange, origin for people of a certain ethnic origin, which is a ridiculous designation, and you should stop it right there. But some bookshops do it. Uh, I'm giving you one of those critical looks that suggests that I, I am genuinely 
perplexed by what you're saying. It, it's ridiculous. It's great radio, this. It is. Mm. No, it's, 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 it's essentially some designations are useful. So a young adult mm. tells you that it's that it's aimed at a younger age. So it's a useful designation, but it's not a genre. Um, I'm interested in young adult fantasy. I'm interested in young adult sci-fi. I'm interested in young adult horror. I'm less interested in young adult romance. Because, you know, when I was a young adult, I mostly read young adult romance. I'm done with that genre now. I don't know. When, 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 because you and I are of a similar age, when, when we were young adults, as, as what would be considered today, did we have, you know, a specific young adult designation? I don't think we did, did we? It was all a bit different back then. You, you, In the good old days. You got stuff that was kind of, it, there were books for younger readers. But, and it kind of, it's interesting, isn't it? Would the Weird Stone Uprising them? by Alan Garner, uh, which is, as far as I'm concerned, a classic book aimed at young people, mm. as a classic fantasy novel, would that be designated as a young adult these days? Probably. What a waste. What a, what a waste of a massive audience there. Would it, uh, would it be designated as a young adult, or would it be designated for younger children these days? What's, what, what age is young adult? Um, any, anything up to 18. But yeah, what's, what's, the, what's the younger? Um, oh, the younger it's, it starts like, like twelve to eighteen. Or something. Yeah, it starts at like ten and then goes up. Yeah. I think I think officially it's something in between. It's like thirteen to seventeen or something. Yeah. It's quite narrow, but that's you, very narrow. But when you say you know when you say it's for twelve year olds, there's always that you yeah, know yeah, eight year old. Depends, depends on your twelve year old, doesn't it? Yeah, depends on your twelve year old. Depends mm-hmm. on your because you, you get twelve year olds. Yeah, I don't know. I I think these days the weirdest out of everything mm-hmm. would probably be mm, steered towards a slightly younger audience. I'm speculating because it's forever since I read it and it's all gone a bit hazy from quite honest. Well, I read it when I was ten. Right. So, but then I read the Narnia books when I was 10, 11 as well. Uh, and the Narnia books were apparently children's books. Yeah, I probably read books. Narnia when I was about 10, 11. Uh, but the Narnia books were apparently children's books as well. Yes. Now, you know, the weird thing about the Narnia books is I own the entire series. I haven't read all of them. Goodness. I read them... So I've read, like... I've definitely read the first three. Yeah. And I definitely haven't read the last two. But the other two, I couldn't quite be sure either way. I read them in order because that's what yeah, you're yeah, supposed to do. Absolutely. It. And I read them in, chrono- in in story chronological order, not in order of publication. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know what order I read them in at this point. So I read The Magician's Nephew first, mm-hmm. which is the prequel. It is. And so yeah, I, I think I've read them in that order. Yeah. So, so my perspective was a little bit different because everyone else was like, "Oh, you should read the Lion Rich in order first. And I was like, "But that's book two. I want to read book one first because plainly says book two on the on the uh, spine. On, on the spine. So yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the order I'm supposed to read them. Yeah, um, you, you've not missed anything of the last battle, I have to say. And, and then we, we head back. It's, it's, we seem to be wanting to talk about religious things, and I really don't want to. The last battle is very religious. What were we talking about before we went off on a tangent? We were talking about Into Everywhere by Paul McCauley. Oh. Appropriately so. We kind of got distracted and went into everywhere. Uh, it's a it's a it's sequel to something coming coming something coming. Um, it's a future history at its very best is what it's been described as. Um, the humanity's future disrupted by the mysterious alien Jackaroo. Mankind has discovered other worlds. Humanity swiftly uncovers lots and lots of previous civilizations that have be- also been given this benefaction by the, the Jackaroo, but those civilizations have collapsed. So the, the idea is basically aliens come and go, here, here are all the technology and all the toys and all the guns that you mm-hmm. could possibly want. Oh, that can only end badly with here, human beings involved. Here is your part of space for you to explore. <laughs> oh, look, look, other people have tried this as well, and they've all died. Yeah, but people are stupid. Yeah, can mankind learn, learn its lesson, no, or will it no. add its name to the long list of dead races? Yes. I think it'll be worth reading, though, and finding out. Um, 
And let's see. Loads of stuff, actually. The Latter Fire, Star Trek, the original series, by Jim Swallow. Hey, hi, Jim. <laughs> um, uh, you can rely on Jim Swallow to deliver the best in Star Trek fiction. You really can. He's very, very good. Um, yeah, this is set during the five-year mission. That, that five-year uh, mission of James explore type. Explore Strange New Worlds. Explore Strange New Worlds. And Probably go where no person has gone before. In case it's green alien ladies, let's be honest. It's pretty much the mission there. James, I think that's James T. Kirk's personal mission. Well, you know, you've got to have gold. <laughs> Um, this is a warm. This is a story where um, they basically they're, they're negotiating with an alien race called the Saihar, um, who, uh, yeah, earlier earlier on their five year mission, they kind of stopped to help them for you know the the aliens were explored, exploring and they stopped and gave them a bit of a hand and changed the tire on their spaceship <laughs> and this sort of thing, and it's possible that you know. The crew of the Enterprise being the crew of the Enterprise have completely violated the primary directive and changed the They're course of this. They're very bad at that. They are, but it's kind of like you know the central message of you know the 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 dangers of imperialism and all the rest of it, which is weird because some Star Trek, some Star Trek stuff. This is the thing with Star Trek. This is the thing with Star Trek as a genre in general is personally, Star Trek can't just. Dis- can't decide if it's utopian fiction or a story about mankind sorting itself out and going into the stars or if it's um, sci-fi military fantasy mm-hmm. and it's a bit of both and it doesn't quite work and at the risk of kicking over an ant's nest Ooh. one of the poorest military models to base your fantastic future utopia on would be the American military which is what it's broadly based on and you look at Star Trek and you go uh, this doesn't quite work because you know it's 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 a, a tale of why you know the primary directive is essentially all about you know imperial exp- imperial expansionism is bad okay but here are a bunch of people who are clearly modeled on an idea of imperial expansionism and you can sit there and you can go oh but they're not wearing you know they're not wearing big uniforms and they're not looking obviously it's like just because the iconography doesn't make them look obviously like like they're spreading mankind across for the benefit of mankind and no one else doesn't mean they aren't. Doesn't mean they aren't. And yeah, someone's going to go up. Oh, but the Federation works like this. Yeah, but in the show, it, the backstory is that. But then the way they behave is counter to the whole thing. And the thing I love about people like Jim Swallow um, and Una McCormack and stuff is they're not afraid to kind of explore the the essential paradox of the Federation. And in fairness to all of that, that essential po- paradox, once it's mined, is a great source of story. That that whole, you know, well, we're supposed to be doing this for, you know, we're supposed to be doing this out of enlightened, you know, enlightened curiosity and the desire to explore and the desire to learn more about the universe. But at the same time, if it's in our interest, surely we should do it. And isn't that a bad thing? And so on. And I love that. I love when um, the TV series DS9 touches on that quite well. Um, And Star Trek really works when it actually, you know, when it doesn't try and give you a lecture but it just says here are the tools here are some ideas go, on, go away and have a think about that for a bit come back compare notes with other Star Trek fans I love it when Star Trek does that and I love it when um, it seems to be that British sci-fi writers love to do that as well which I think is a great thing um, if only if only there were more opportunities for, for British sci-fi authors to write Star Trek when there's been some sort of competition recently that had allowed people in the United Kingdom and other parts of the world to enter and put a short story in. It's a pity they didn't do that. He uh, said bitterly in a bitter tone. I'm slightly annoyed. It's not bitter, but it's irritated. Um, because come on, seriously. I'm assuming it was. I'm assuming the lawyers advised them. 
It's probably a total legal thing. Um, some some Sykes has a book out on Orbit called The Mortal Tally. Uh, we like Sam Sykes. He's been compared compared to Scott Lynch and Fitz Lever. I think it's a fair comparison. It's a bit of two big names there, but yeah, he's he's, he's quite good. Uh, the Mortal Tally is uh, the much talk about the sequel to The City Stained Red, um, with the city of Sierdijal falling into ruin. It's up to the reluctant hero Link to find a monster that has caused all of this suffering and put an end to it all, possibly at the cost of his own soul. Dun, dun, dun. How are we doing for books? For books or for time? For time and Oh, we're fine for time. Okay. is Fab Radio International. International. Okay, so I'm going to review the Star Wars tie-in novel. The Star Wars tie-in book is tied into Star Wars The Force Awakens. They are extremely mild spoilers in the sense that if you haven't seen the trailers, you're going to get spoiled. If you don't know who the cast are, you're going to get a little bit spoiled. And we're going to try and avoid any other sort of spoilers, just in case you're waiting for the Blu-ray to come out. At, At this point, surely most people will have seen at least the trailer. And it, at the point, by the point that this show goes out, it will have been a month since the film came out in the cinema pretty in the mu- UK. Pretty much it's your own ex- it's your own fault. But okay, well we're just playing it slightly safe because you know people have kids, people have family, people have been on Mars for the last three months, you know that sort of thing. Um, so. So, Greg Ricker, Greg Ricker is a comic book writer, he is Italian author, he is a well, well-known figure in the scene, uh, he is pretty much your safe pair of hands. So, Before the Awakening is a Star Wars tie-in novel that is a prequel to um, Star Wars The Force Awakens, and when we say it's a prequel, we mean literally bits of it happen minutes before. Oh, that's that's very prequel, isn't it? It's very prequel. Because when you so, say to me prequel, I always imagine, you know... No, th- this some considerable time before stuff th- happens. Th- this this is it depends because so it, it covers Ray, uh-huh. Poe, and Finn. Uh-huh. Um, we'll, we'll start with Poe because uh-huh. he's dreamy. Poe sounds like a Teletubby. Sorry, he, he is a Teletubby. Poe is a Teletubby. Not in Star Wars: The Force Awakens, but there's a Teletubby <laughs> called Poe. I mean, it would be an entirely different movie if, if, if the Teletubby. I sort of want to see that movie now. I sort of demand somebody makes that mash up for YouTube. It's if they haven't done so already, which they probably have. I can imagine Paul the Teletubby being quite a good pilot. Yeah. Um, right, so, Paul is... <sighs> Paul's currently my favourite D- D- Disney princess. I mean prince. Um, he's very charming. He's a lovely character. He, he is in the movie. Uh, he, you know, he's a, you know, he's the, the hotshot pilot in the movie. Um, 
and, and all the rest of it. He's kind of, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of pretty and he's kind of cool and he's got a really cool jacket and he's got a really nice relaxed way of him. You, when you're watching the movie, you sit there and you can go, I see where they're going with this character and you smirk to yourself slightly. Um, so, uh, what's his, so this is three short, this is three short novella length stories. It's quite a thin book, is Mm. It is before the awakening, um, and the reason it's quite a thin book is because it's these little prequel shorts. Yeah, um, it's also written in a young adult accessible style. Okay, so it's t- the movie is a twelve A. Right. Okay. If you're a ten year old, there is nothing in here that will make you ask questions to your parents. <laughs> Uh, essentially, which is, what, which is what we always want to avoid. Um, so it's suitable for twelve-year-olds. No problem with that at all. It's a little bit scary in places, but you know, you're twelve. Fine, you can watch a Star Wars movie. You know, it's it, it aimed at it's the, aimed the, the at prob- the problem. Of course, with the twelve A certificate, is that you will get five-year-olds in there. It's aimed at. It's not aimed at younger people. It's just accessible by younger people. So you know, as as a as a fully fledged member of the grown-up society, which apparently I am, because they handed me a card and said I was wasn't fair but you know apparently you don't get to choose as a fully fledged member of the grown up society I enjoyed it fully it's just accessible by all ages so you know it's a book for all the family so getting on to Paul Paul is Paul's prequel story is quite prequely we actually meet him when he's a young Paul with his family his family we learn are, are also you know clearly clearly rebel heroes this again is not a spoiler interesting um, and we learn more about who he is what his motivations are what his world is, what his worldview is, and we kind of—it's almost like a. Do we get to see where he comes from? Yeah. Oh. Um, we know that already. Already, it's really easy to find out. And um, the actor himself is from the place that they used for the location of Yavin. Ah. So he's from Yavin, which is oh. a really nice little note. The actual actor is from you know yeah, yeah. that part of the world. So they were like, well, okay, we'll make a character from that part of that, that planet. Um, so it's kind of really cool. The thing I love about it is I'm I'm a huge Star Wars nerd and I'm a huge spaceships nerd. I like fictional spaceships. Big fan of real spaceships as well, but big fan of fictional spaceships. It starts off talking about an A-Wing and how useful the A-Wing is and very, very mild st- spoiler, Paul Dameron had an A-Wing when he was a kid it was the family car <laughs> A-Wings are really cool and it's like you know it's like Port Ammons Port Ammons had a space Volkswagen but not just a space Volkswagen a space Volkswagen Beetle you know it's like oh my goodness and then and it continues because he's a pilot and what Greg Rucker has done is he sat down with of the, the Star Wars Universe guide and gone, well, he's a pilot, so what ships has he flown? And, and rather than saying, oh, well, it's this ship and it's that, that ship. What a whole little backstory. Greg goes into detail. So there's a little bit, I was sitting reading it and I, I made a little squeeing sound, sound and got very excited when, I'm really sorry, again, this is not a spoiler, a T95 headhunter appears. This means nothing to most of you, I'm totally aware. T95 headhunter is uh, an X Wing with the X bits cut off. It's got two wings rather than four. Hmm. It's only got two thrusters. It's only one man. It's much smaller than the X Wing. Um and you see them you see them in the prequel movies, um, as kind of prototype uh, Jedi flu versions of the of the T ninety five head, aren't they? Um and the they're 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 more of a they're more of a dodgy pirate ship these days. You find them among scum and villainy a lot. <laughs> Uh, the Black Sun used them. I'm heading into massive nerdery. Oh, that's a good question. What do you mean, heading into? Is the Black Sun still part of the Disney canon? I have literally no clue. Oh, good 
Clone, if the Clone Wars TV series is, I'm assuming it is. Cause anyway, book with you. Sorry, anyway. So that's Paul Dameron. Um, it's a great little story. Uh, again, there's no spoilers for the movie in there. It just gives you a flavour for the character. I do actually recommend you read this book after you've seen the movie. Um, now, let's get to Ray. So in the movie and in the trailer, we don't know that we're not giving that much about Ray in the trailer. So what you do know is she lives in a desert, and her life appears sand and her life appears to suck. Guess what? Ray's life sucks. Yeah, yeah, I got that. It's the longest story in the collection. It's beautiful. Whereas, whereas the thing I like about. Um, the thing I like about this collection about Before the Awakening is each story reflects the character so where's Paul Dameron who's like a light easy going but really competent and really cool guy has a really cool little story about him so he's done some really cool stuff Ray who's a bit mysterious and the stuff that's you know holding her back that's the, what the story's about so it tells you how amazing Ray is it tells you how you know how she's worked for everything that she's got all the skills that she has explains you know why she is so competent why she is so skilled Mm -hmm. but also explains you know why is someone so talented living in a backwater why haven't they you know and it doesn't give you it doesn't give you the facts it just gives you an insight to the character if you see what I'm saying so you're not going to get any kind of secrets that you can lord over your mates and go I know this secret Ah, behind Ray no you just get to know the character a bit better and he captures I can only assume that he was either given he must have been given the script but I can only assume that you know he he got some sort of feeling for the way the the characters and the actors were being were were behaving because he catches the actress's performance in the text perfectly it's a perfect. The thing is, the film takes so long to make that he possibly has seen lushes or something. Oh, just enough. Or rough cuts or you whatever. know, he always had a, an extensive conversation with someone in the set for a few days or whatever. Or you he's know, read the script or something. Or combination. He's had he's had some sort of because it, he captures. I mean, he captures all of the the heroes really well, but this particular story, he just captures her so well. And that, that, there's that thing of you know, there's that thing about Ray is that part of you wants to go, wants to you know. Lean into the screen, give her a pat, and say it's going to be okay. Well, it's not. It's not. But it's really, really it's, not. It's really not. But I kind of, you know, uh, here, have a have a toffee crisp. You'll be fine. <laughs> you, you, you know, and it's a great story. It's really, really well done. It's about it's Rego scavenging. Is the is the plot? Whereas Paul Dameron's story is Paul goes and does something heroic. Uh, Ray's story is Rego's Rego scavenging. Now, shall we get to Finn? Okay. Finn is the most spoiler. It's not spoiler tastic. It's just that if I want to tell you about the cool stuff, then we head into spoilers. Mm. So, what we learn about Finn is Finn is very good at being a stormtrooper, except for the bit about being, you know, a horrible, horrible tool of of the First Order. So he's really uh, Finn is raised from a young age with a pod of other people training to be stormtroopers. He doesn't get a nickname. All his friends do. Aww. Um, and we kind of get this is this is where it gets a bit tricky to talk about. To be honest, <laughs> um, but all the rest of them just get kind of right. Okay, so there's there's another three friends. They all have nicknames based on their designation name. A name normally, except for their mate Slips, who's called Slips because he keeps slipping. Um, who's the the least competent of their their group? 
if you see what I mean. Uh-huh. And it's the tale of an outsider who, you know, he's not an outsider in the fact that he's deliberately set himself apart. He's not, he's not, you know, rebelling in any way. It's just who he is. It's a story, it's essentially the story of an individual who is in a world where individuality is not needed. And it's essentially individual, individuality is required in the sense that everyone is picking Finn to be some sort of leadership role, you know, team leader. Um, and there's a wonderful scene where the this kind of bunch of, you know, new stormtroopers joins up with the, the already graduated stormtroopers. And they go, well, what are your names? And they're like, hey, here are all what are your nicknames? Except for Finn, who goes, uh, no, my, I'm, you know, designation 87, blah, 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 uh, FN. Was it what, FN 187? I can't remember. FN 287. I'd have to look at my notes. Um, but it, And they go, ah, so you're obviously the leader because you're the one without a nickname. Mm. Now, if you've seen the movie, mm. you know where I'm going with this. Mm. And you know the story of Finn. Mm. So it's brilliantly done. Because mm. Finn is the stormtrooper who isn't given a name. He's mm. just given a serial number. All the rest of them have serial numbers and a nickname and an individuality and they conform. That is Finn interesting. Isn't, it's clever, isn't it? It's interesting, yes. Yeah. So, is it worth reading? Yes! <laughs> uh, if you like... Now, you, now, I'm not sure that you're emphatic enough about that. If you like the Star Wars movie, it's worth your time. It'll take you almost no time to read it. It's a thin, slim volume. It's got pictures in it. Um, it, you know, it's, you know, if you if you're one of those people like grew up like me, weirdly, did you ever get this when you were a kid? Get what? If the book had pictures in it, it was not a good book because all the books for adults didn't have pictures in them. No. Yeah, it's total nonsense. But essentially, like, because picture books have pictures in them. Okay. And then I'm going to cite Wind in the Willows to you right now. Yeah, but that seems like children. Okay. It's not actually. It's it's really aimed at adults. No, I think there are certain editions of Pride and Prejudice that have pictures in them. Yeah, it's complete. It's one of those weird things, isn't it? As a kid, I think I think some. Also, place, you know, every biography and autobiography you get has pictures of the subject. And plates and things. Yeah, yeah, but no, this is a book with pictures in it. So it's, it's that weird. It's, this is going to have to be a different conversation at some point when we talk about the idea of book with pictures in it, and why there's some weird stigma that you know if it's aimed at a certain age, then obviously you know, grown up books don't have pictures. And yes, they do. But um, yeah, it's just that weird thing that I encountered when I was growing up, and I've talked to other people in the past, and I'm like, yeah, that's that weird, weird kind of. Anyway, I like illustrations in books, especially especially when you um, Station Eleven does it brilliantly. Where you get to a certain point, and then there's a slight spoiler. There's a sort of illustration in it, and you just go, "Oh my goodness, why is this here?" And then you, you, you look at it, and you go, "Oh, oh, oh," and then you move on because you know there's a thousand words on one page. Mm. So yeah, um, it's great. Um, it's got some nice little illustrations that make the the point about the various characters. Um, my favourite story is Paul Dameron's story because. So sorry, hang on a minute. Uh, when we say illustrations, are we talking pe- uh, pencil drawings or are we talking like stills in the film? Pencil drawings. Oh, okay. Pencil drawings of uh, the main characters doing something cool. Okay. Though obviously Finn has his helmet on, so you know it's a picture of Stormtrooper. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like oh, it's a picture of a stormtrooper. Okay. Um, the, the, see, there's a thing. The, there is a 
there is a cool scene in the movie uh, and this book kind of underlines the coolness of that scene there's a couple of cool scenes what, it, what this book does is it underlines some of the cool bits but you don't need to read, have read it at all to enjoy the movie you just if you've watched the movie and you plan on going to see it again and you get the book read the book then go and see the movie so go and see the movie first then read the book then go and see the movie again okay and is then, that the order you did it in? yeah Ooh. I had, had great fun so the book is by Greg Rucker and it's, I'm going to guess it's available in most good bookstores right now. It's on Egmont. Oh. And uh, through Disney Books. Ah. This is the bit of the show where we talk about uh, interviews and who we're interviewing. We've got lots of interviews set up for the new year. As you probably know, we're changing the format of the show to a thing called Brave New Words. Um, so we're going we're gonna to be playing with the format a little bit, but we're still going to continue to do interviews with authors. So if you have anyone you want us to talk to... Um, Hi, and welcome back. So, as you probably know, we are going to change the format of the show slightly. We've got some exciting things planned. Um, we're going to change the show to... Brave New Words. And we're faffing with the format at the moment. And so we're tinkering in the background. We've got some exciting stuff coming up. We're going to continue to do the author interviews. We've had a few questions where people have gone, you can still talk to authors, yeah? We're, like, we're still going to talk to authors. And other key industry insiders. Oh, we are thinking about doing a thing because we're changing the format of maybe having them on the show more and having them more interacted rather than this little ring fence bit that we have at the moment. If there are people that you want us to talk to, or if you are someone yourself who wants to appear on the show, get in touch. Uh, the usual the, the usual contact methods apply. Um, just just let us know. We are, we are available at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. We're available at Radio Bookworm on Tumblr and on Facebook. All of those have message functions, so you know just just get in touch. Uh, you can you don't have to follow back people on Twitter anymore for direct messages. It's really useful. Cool. I just thought I'd mention that. So I better on the subject of interviews and on that subject we have the lovely Jackie Morris who illustrates the covers of Robin Hobbs books among other other fantastic novels so welcome to the show Jackie Morris tell us about what you're up to Um, at the moment I'm re-jacketing the live ships by Robin Hobbs for the second time Um, I I was I'm so lucky as a, an illustrator because um, a long time ago I was asked if I would il- um, do illustrations for some jacket designs for some fantasy fiction and I was really busy with the work that I was doing um, and I said yeah but only if they were by Robin Hobb because I was reading her books for the first time having just found them and it turned out that they were. So it was just, it, you know, one of those amazing coincidences that never happens except in a film. It's like that. You've done far more than just Robin Hobb covers, though, haven't you? Um, I have, yeah. I've, I've, um, I've illustrated children's books mostly for years and years and years, and I've also written 
um, books for children, but actually they're, they're not really books for children, they're just books and grown-ups love them too. Um, so I've got two books coming out this year of my own, um, and calendar and note cards and all kinds of things. Which do you enjoy more? Um, it's it's fantastic to be able to do both because you can uh, write the story with the images as well um, as with the words. You can really meld the two together. Um, when when I first started out illustrating, I used to work mostly for magazines and newspapers, um, and I, I didn't have the trick of doing jackets. Jacket designs are something different altogether. Um, they're, they're almost like the... Um, Unless you know an author, they're what catches the eye. They're what leads you to pick up a book, um, not walk past it in a shop in a very, very crowded world full of other images. Um, so jacket design is very different from illustration um, on the inside of a book. Um, and writing is, is just something else. Um, I love to read. Um, I love the places that reading can take you. Uh, and when you're actually writing your own stories, um, it is like going into another world, really. I always used to think writers were crazy, um, but now I know why, really, because you just you spend all day playing with your imaginary friends, um, and then somebody will speak to you, and you kind of get pulled out into this world, and uh, I'd, I'd rather be inside a book. You have an instantly recognisable and extremely eye-catching style. Why is it that approach that you've taken? Um, that's a really difficult one. I, I have a, a thing about not drawing the human characters. Um, I think every single person who reads a book will have their own image of what the main character looks like. Um, I've, I've been thinking recently about Fitz. What does Fitz look like? I, I can't him down um, his physical self um, he what she does it, she, she makes characters out of ink and paper out of, of 26 letters of the alphabet she makes people that you just fall in love with that you feel like you want to be with all the time um, her other creatures characters um, night eyes I've painted a few times um, I still don't think I get him right. But the way that I do her books is I read them. I've I've read um, the Farseer nine books about, I don't know how many times now. Um, when you read a book, when you're trying to do a cover, you read it in a very, very different way to how you're reading just for pleasure. Um, I have to confess, though, with, with Robin Hobb's books, um, I, I forget halfway through that I'm supposed to be working, that I'm supposed to be finding that key to the cover, and I just get lost in her story. Um, and then I have to go back and read it all again, which is no great hardship. What's with the ribbon? No, it's a pied crow. It's a pied crow. And I remember talking to her when I was working on Fool's Assassin, and she said, um, there's a... There's a black and white crow that keeps coming into the garden. I think I'm going to work it into the next book. And you just, your heart kind of lifts on little wings, really. Um, Fool's Quest is the first book that I've done a jacket for where I haven't read the book. Um, which is, it, it's kind of torturous for me because I love to actually get right into the book to find the little keys in the book to kind of open it out. What I did instead was I talked to 
Robin about um, what she would like to see on the cover, what would make sense. At one point she said, what would you like to paint? I'll write it into the story. Can you imagine? This is my favorite author, and she's saying to me, I'll write in something for you to paint. And I couldn't think of anything. Um, so we talked We talked about ideas. We talked about what was in the book. She fed me small sections of the book, um, maybe not, not more than a thousand words. Um, um, I'm hooked. I can't wait to read it. I just... Uh, I can't say anything about what I've read, but it's just wonderful. What's next? My next big project is um, kicking my heels and having a nice time, actually. I've worked really, really hard over the last six months on my next book, which comes out at the end of this year. It's called The Wild Swans, and it's um, an illustrated retelling of the Anderson story. I can't tell you how hard I worked on it. I think it was the most difficult book that I've done. And I've got a few different things to do, um, but um, I'm not in a rush to get back into publishing. Um, I, I'm looking at the last 30 years of my work and working out what to do next. Um, I've got a head full of stories that I want to write, and I'm just painting for pleasure and not having anything to do with publishing because I'm, I'm a bit sick of how it works and the, the kind of um, marketing decisions that are made by publishers and um, the nonsense that goes along with creativity. So I'm kind of sitting back looking at what I've done over the last 30 years and moving forward. One of the ways I'm doing this is I have a publisher called Graphic who are going to publish an art book of mine which um, will include sketches and drawings, cover designs. Um, work that I've done over the last 30 years, um, paintings that I'm doing now. Because I think if you're if you're gonna you know if you're gonna paint and be an artist, you might as well tangle up your whole life in your work. So I'm supposed to be sitting back, relaxing, thinking about things, but actually I've got so many ideas for stories that, that I want to do, um, texts that I want to lose myself in. I'm looking forward to doing the third of the Robin Hobb covers, and I know that she's working on the text now for the third, um, possibly final, of these books. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one book for company, what would it be? Um, I'd have the child ballads, um, which is kind of cheating because there's five books and they're um, collected works of um, British folk songs and tangled up in all those ballads are so many stories. Uh, I know a lot of other um, authors. I know Neil Gaiman particularly is inspired by the child ballads and the stories that are tangled up in song. Um, yeah, so that one. Oh, I, I, I need the collected works of Robin Hobb as well. Mm. Truth or beauty? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's difficult I would say I would say truth is beauty so um, I'll air with the truth um, and Demons and Angels one of my favourite characters in literature is um, Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost uh, Jackie Morris thank you very much for your time this is Fab Radio International International this is Fab Radio International International Across the world, 24 hours a day, 
You should start talking now. I really should. We should be talking about books. Well, we are a book show after all. Um, so yeah, the. <laughs> It's difficult when you're talking about kind of tie-in fiction, especially if someone saw cl- something so close to Star Wars. Mm. Um, and we'll probably talk about this a bit more on the show, but we were talking about Star Trek earlier as well, and we are talking about Star Trek... Mm. S- Star Wars. Star Wars. It's interesting that with Star Wars, they've, they've started to rebuild the canon. Yeah, and they've started to rebuild the world, and it's it, it's fascinating that because every, everyone knows what Star Wars is, it's space fantasy. Yeah, and everyone's familiar with the idea and the setup of it. Um, and a lot of people grew up reading a set of the books and set of the stories, and I think we're now all minded to the idea that these are stories from a galaxy far, far away, and it doesn't really matter which ones are more real than the others. <laughs> I think it's interesting that time fiction's kind of back. That as well. Uh, I don't think it ever really went away. No, but I think I, I think the sheer kind of range of stuff that you can get tie-in fiction for, um, the, the strangest tie-in fiction I own personally probably is Diagnosis Murder tie-in fiction. It's officially licensed product. But you get elementary tie-in fiction as well. You do get elementary tie-in fiction as well, yes, which I also own. And I'd be interested to and look... And it's the various CSI franchises. I'd be interested to look at the, those author names and see who they are and see if they are, in fact, established. Because a lot, a lot of that kind of tie-in fiction is through either tie-in authors who do tie-in and that's mm. what they do and that's their kind of kind of career path and they've decided to be tie-in authors. And then you get the likes of, like, for example, there's a tortured novel written by Sarah mm. Pinborough. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Pinder is a, a well-regarded, you know, she's done film and TV at this point. Um, you know, she's a well-regarded horror author slash, you know, kind of slash thriller author. Adam Christopher is another example. He did the um, elementary stuff. And again, he's a well-regarded author. It's, I think tying is becoming less of a stigma these days and more of a, of a way of showing that you can work within certain limitations. Uh, we had a chat yonks ago, many, many yonks ago, with Sarah Carkwell, mm. who was saying that one of the things that she did when she started, because she started off as a tying author, and she was doing the 40K stuff, and... She had people turning around to her and go, yeah, but it's not a proper achievement, is it? Because you've done tie-in novels. And how, and how many tie-in novels have you written, sir? Exactly. And it's like, well... Sh- show, show me your New York Times bestseller. In many ways, it's harder because you can't... Because you know, you're playing in somebody else's sample and you've got to play in their rules. And, and, you know, you will have ideas for characters in your head for years and you can't use those characters because as soon as you use those characters, they become part of that tie-in world. And, and also, them. very much I suspect with tie-in fiction, is you've got to write the story that somebody else wants you to write. Or at least within the parameters of the story. Yeah. For example, in a supernatural short story, a supernatural story, it's unlikely they're going to let the monsters go. Yeah. And they might do, because there are supernatural stories where they do that, but it's rare. Uh, a Doctor Who story where, you know, he kills people. And, and it's weird, actually, though, when when a tie-in novel goes outside the box and outside the parameters, people get very excited. So the War Doctor stuff, George Martin War, War Doctor stuff, that very much is, I should point out, from the northeast of England. I mean, War Doctor, not my Doctor. Anyway, never mind, we'll stop that before we start. Uh, the War Doctor stuff um, is great and really well written, but people are expecting it to be military SF, which it's never going to be because mm. it's Doctor Who. But, you know, the Doctor at War is an interesting concept and an interesting... It allows... I think the thing with tie-in novels is that occasionally it allows you to play with the, the lines and the parameters. One of the things we were talking about briefly a little while ago was the fact that in 
spin-off media, so tie-in novels, tie-in books and all the rest of it, they can take more risks. Mm. So they are gay characters in the cartoon se- series and it well not in com- yeah there's implied gay characters in the cartoon series there's gay characters in the Star Wars books we've not seen one on screen yet 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 but it's interesting this may be coming but it's interesting that there's that kind of it's also become that test bed I suspect there's that situation it's like okay let's let's try it on the try it here and we're going to get the usual idiots complaining that's fine because then we've already done it and then when we do it on screen and more idiots start complaining, we can just turn around and say we've had this in, this, in the universe for years. Did, did you not notice? And I think it's, it's a bit trolling, really, because by doing stuff, by changing stuff in the tie-in novel and then turning around and saying, well, you know, it's been, it's been like that for ages. You, clearly, you're not hipster enough to understand it. It's a bit unfair. <laughs> but on the other hand, progress starts... Yeah. Your know, progress starts with those who are willing to make the effort to progress. And if you're make, willing to make the effort to read, then you're probably willing to make the effort to think more. And if you think more, then you're more likely to want change for the good. He said slightly philosophically. I might be talking out of my hat as per usual. Possibly. Possibly my Stormtrooper helmet. Oh. But um, there's some great... The thing is, there is some great time fiction out there. It just gets, it gets much maligned and kind of ignored. But I bet it sells by the truckload, you know. It does. It's quite. It's quite a good. I mean, the, talking about the New York Times bestseller thing, slightly, which I was slightly dismissive of uh, momentarily ago. I mean, I'm, I'm aware that some of the 40k stuff used to quite regularly be at the top of those charts when they when they managed it in a very yes. specific way yes. and they played the game. Um, it used to top the the New York Times bestseller, and by the, by by playing the game, I mean actually distributing their books when they said in they were going to. Some sort of coherent way. That's a different conversation when we talk about the fact that for those of you who might have missed this, Black Library used to have a very regular release schedule that you could find out a lot about it in advance. They've since changed that to favour their own retail stalls. Uh, and you think, well, that makes sense. Surely they're a business. No, Games Workshop own less than 100 retail stores compared to the thousands of bookshops that are in the world. Um, so it was a bit of a dumb move. Uh, and it kind of meant that they dropped off the New York Times bestselling list. On the other hand, those books still sell like hotcakes, mm-hmm. but I have not read a Horace Heresy novel since they, t- they they made those changes. Mm-hmm. I just stopped. Mm-hmm. They weren't easy to get my hands on, and there's loads of stuff out there that's easier to get my hands on than read. So if there's a really good 40k novel out there that I've missed, tell me, and I will look at, into it. I'd love to. I love that setting. I want them to do more. There should be more 40k stuff out there in the world. It, it should, you know, it it's got such the potential anyway. to be on par with Star Wars. Um, anyway, shall we shall we run away? Yes. Have we done a show? Yes. Goodness me. Starburst Magazine. Starburst Magazine. The world's longest running magazine of sci-fi horror and fantasy. Get the latest news, features, interviews, and reviews from your favorite genre. Available from a newsagent near you or download to your iPad today. So, I've been your host, Ed Fortune. Is that it? And I'm going to run away. Okay. The Book Room is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst Magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune. Produced by Anne Davis. Thank you.